Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. I I can almost touch you. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, so listeners, really weird thing happening right now. Nora and I are um, in the same room. We're like face face to face. And it's like really uncomfortable. It is weird. This is the weirdest thing because... Uh, we don't ever record in the same room unless we're doing a live show and we're not doing a live show. I mean, I guess we have an audience of one. Uh, hello, Chris. Chris is, is helping us to record. We're at 1990 Studios in Toronto, which is a podcast studio, which is where we both are. We're both in Toronto very randomly. And so we decided let's record together in front of each other. And yeah, this is hella weird. This is like the weirdest thing. This is fucking weird. It is. It's fucking weird. And it's like, even in live shows, we are not looking at each other. (laughs) (laughs) And we are looking at each other. Um, But yes, we are here and we're going to try to make this this new world work. And I'm just going to try to stare at um, other parts of the table. Something else. I mean, I'm going to just like have my Twitter open or something like that. Yeah, that sounds great, Sandy. Whoa, I can't believe I can't believe that. You know, I just came from Calgary where a lot of folks apparently listen to the pod. Oh, hey, Calgary, what's up? Yeah, yeah. So anybody listening who I just met this past week for the first time, hey. And also, it was the first time uh, I got to meet a lot of people who I've known online for two years, for five years, and it's amazing. I mean, I know we're not over the pandemic. I know we're still in the middle of it, but to be able to finally see people in real life has really, uh, it's been amazing, frankly, like just awesome. So Calgary's cool. It's actually a great city, contrary to all of the things you've ever heard ever about. um, I mean, Alberta is not Calgary. We know that. And sorry, Edmonton, um, my favorite Alberta place is now Calgary. Ooh, really? (laughs) fighting words, fighting words. Yes, it has been nice um, to be in Toronto and be reacquainted with with folks. And I just, I also want to say, Um, in this sort of pre-period before we get into what we're going to talk about. You all have to read Nora's book. (laughs) You're waiting to say this to my face. (laughs) Nora, it's really good. It's really good. You did a lot of unearthing of information that I, you know, that I hadn't uh, read before. And I'm just really enjoying hating um, all of the things that you found out Mm -hmm. and uh, how inconsistent our uh, public health agencies are across the country, how inconsistent data collection is. You've put a lot into this book and it should be uh, a national scandal, several national scandals uh, you've unearthed. And if you have not had a chance to read Nora's book, you really should. uh, Spin Doctors Mm -hmm. by Nora Loretto. Pick it up. And if you are in any of the major cities in Canada and there's a line of like 12 to 100 people waiting for the book, (laughs) I I just am so sorry. Um, We unfortunately got caught in the middle of a distribution shift at the publisher. And um, and so I know a lot of people have also had their orders canceled from like chapters Indigo. So if anyone's wondering what it's like to write a book and then just not be able to sell it, um, you know, get at me. I'm an expert in that and I'm happy to consult on how much that sucks. 
<laughs> okay. So, Nora, I'm sure we have plenty of people to thank, but as we've mentioned, we are both in Toronto. We're not in our regular situation. We don't um, have the list in front of us. So all of the people that we have to thank this week, we will be thanking you next week. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still love you and are very grateful. Uh, and we've got a few things to talk about today. Yes, we do. Um, so... I know there's like this thing that everyone talks about in Canada is like the foundation for why Canada is so sweet and it's supposed to protect our rights. It's supposed to uh, allow us uh, certain freedoms. And I, I don't know. I've always thought it was kind of like bullshit, but I, you know, sometimes like I actually got to invoke charter rights once in a, in a trial where I was, yeah, I, I mean, I know no, we can't do this. You cannot look at me like that because they cannot see you. <laughs> <laughs> See, now what has happened is Nora's responding to my face, which she never gets to do. This is all very strange. Yes, I was uh, testifying against the police in a, in a class action against the police. And um, I had broken the law. And so I had to get the, like, you cannot self-criminate yourself piece under the charter uh, before my uh, testimony. And uh, the, the police and the police lawyer just were, they sat back. They're like, oh, this will be interesting. I'm like, yeah, I broke the law. And they're like, damn it. <laughs> that was our only case against her. <laughs> wow. Anyway, that's a whole other story and you can read about it elsewhere. But yeah, so when you get arrested, you have like rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And uh, those are like infallible, right? <laughs> they should be. They're supposed to be. For those of you who don't know or haven't seen, the Toronto Star has done this like uh, really intense investigation across the country, different police agencies and forces from the RCMP um, uh, all the way down to municipal forces from BC to Nunavut to Newfoundland and Labrador. It's, it's really comprehensive. And they worked with Western Law School to, to do this really comprehensive investigation, and they have found that... I know this is going to shock people. This is going to blow your mind. But the police are regularly violating charter rights in Canada. And the impact of that is that uh, a whole bunch of cases, a whole bunch of evidence is being thrown out in court, which is like, okay. And so, uh, I mean, the regularity by which this is happening is like since 2017, Twice a week, judges are making a determinations that the police are violating charter rights of people in Canada. And that is stunning to me. Stunning, but not stunning. Stunning, but not surprising. We like we know, obviously, that these violations happen all the time. Anybody that has any proximity to people who uh, have any experience with the criminal system in this country know that, that these violations happen all the time. Um, and to have it laid out so plainly as to say twice a week, and of course that's going to be an undercount because the only ones that are going to be thrown out are the most egregious or the most, um, the, the ones that so clearly violate uh, an individual's rights. And I wonder, you know, I didn't read the investigation, but I wonder how much um, the Jordan decision, was that mentioned at all? No. That's so interesting because this is the decision that insists that you have to uh, have a, a reasonable timeline from start to, to, to conviction or, or end of your, of, your, uh, of your process. That's a Frenchism, I guess, a Gallicism. Um, but the end of your charges or whatever. And, um, and that was causing a huge problem because charges were being dropped all over the place because people were not um, able to have access to their trials within the three-year limit that was mandated by Jordan. Um, and so that to me was always like, 
whole, okay, we have this massive problem. There's a backlog. It's an overstressed and under-resourced system, but also over-resourced in other ways. And so now you're saying that there's on top of all of that, these other flagrant violations of people's charter rights. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, just to describe to listeners, like some of the things that the Toronto Star investigation is unearthing, it's like there was a a police officer in British Columbia who is regularly, like (laughs) several times, um, strip searching women unconstitutionally uh, during the course of making an arrest and detaining people. And uh, was told, like, you've done this, like, multiple times. Like, there have been more than one case in which a judge has decided you have violated this person's charter rights. And that police officer responded with, this is RCMP policy. Uh, What? I mean, there are cases of um, police officers uh, seemingly from from the article making up shit to try to uh, get justifications to enter people's vehicles. And as we know, um, we're talking about mostly black and indigenous people. Um, and so this is this is uh, a big issue. One of the things, two of the things that really struck me was one that we haven't seen it laid out in this way before. Mm-hmm. I am confused as to why a lot of these cases that are referenced in this large investigation, um, you know, why we haven't heard them talked about in in this manner before. Uh, This is a huge, a big deal. Like why does it take a giant investigation being done by a law school working with a national newspaper uh, in 2022 to get some of these uh, cases that date back to like 2010, 2017, whatever, uh, in front of us. And then two, the conclusion. (laughs) So like the conclusion sort of of the articles, um, you know, they talk to a lot of experts, they talk to um, uh, legal experts, they talk to uh, police officers, they talk to police forces. And I mean, I guess one of the major problems that they seem to focus on is the fact that one, the police don't know when they've... (laughs) Sorry, I can't even finish finish the sentence because it's so ludicrous that the police don't know when they violated the charter. So, you know, they reference like a a court case where a police is, you know, providing evidence on the witness stand and they're like, you know, you've done this before. You've made this charter violation before. And they're like, I I don't know that. Nobody told me. (laughs) And and they're like, nobody told you. Somebody should have told you. And then so the the article starts to focus on why aren't they being told? When they are violating the charter... And then so they come to this sort of conclusion that there has to be some sort of way that the courts are, are telling the police forces and the, and the police forces are then telling the police officers, see, police officers get the knowledge that they are violating us when they are violating us. And I'm just like... I just feel like the problem was, you know, in in this bucket over here that I have in front of me on my lap, and they went for a solution that is, like, way on another planet. <laughs> like, I just don't understand. Yeah, except that isn't that always the conclusion that cops are bad at their jobs and not trained enough and need more 
guns and need more body cams and need more money and need to be paid more. Like, it's just like every single problem with the police is always boiled down to, therefore, they need more. Right. Rather than therefore, we need less. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty disgusting. It's like if there is a service. Well, uh, one of the things that's that I get like strikes me about that second piece that I pulled out that they just don't know is like, Nora, what happens if you break the law and you didn't know that was a law? I get off. No. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you get fucked. Oh, okay. okay. There, it doesn't matter if you don't know that you broke the law. You still have a responsibility to follow the fucking law. And so the police who, you know, I would think should be at a heightened standard to follow the law. Nope. They're at a lower standard. If they don't know that strip searching you is violating your rights or making up that you kind of seem drunk so that they could uh, search your car because... Uh, they wanted a reason to search you or sticking a dog on you when they had no reason to do that and refusing to give you uh, medical treatment when they've harmed you. If they simply didn't know that those things were wrong, then they should get off is the sort of conclusion that this article comes to. Or they should at least be told so that next time, next time they should they can know that if you are bleeding through bandages that they've put on you, that you need you need to get medical attention. Oh my God. I mean uh I, I made this this post a couple of months ago saying like there's no industry that I can think of where the more the people that screw up in that industry the more resourced and the better uh, treated they are by people in power. And a lot of people responded to disagree with me and they're like, well, no, what about, and then they like listed like university admin or like, you know, I don't know. Uh, There was a bunch of other options, but, but I was like, no, no, no. Like, I mean, no, it's, it's still not like that. You still cannot literally do the opposite of what you're supposed to do and then become a political bargaining chip saying, oh my God, actually, no, the the real problem here is that they all need to live in mansions. Like the police (laughs) are just not comfortable enough. They need to have people waiting on them so they don't have to think very hard. Um, They all need five assistants to be like, oh, actually um, the charter uh, says that this person should not be naked right now. And be like, oh, sorry about that. But um, actually these people are also cops. So no one cares. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's great that we're in this moment where there's widespread appreciation and support for defunding the police. And I think that needs to be said. And we have to read police investigations through that lens, understanding that they do not want an audience saying, well, okay, well then what if we just replaced all of these cops with like teenagers? I don't know. Maybe the teenagers would do a better job or maybe elderly women they would do a better job. There's no question about that. Teenagers, maybe not. But actually, they probably still would. They at least would read the charter like once. I mean, we all had to in high school and to pass, which is maybe why the cops haven't read it yet. But anyway, it's um, it's one of those things that I um, I think when we when we're when we're critically engaging with an investigation like this or any reporting on police, understanding that. The, the latent support for defunding the police is going to get journalists to alter the way in which they conclude these things. Um, and then also on your point of how wasn't this known, that that is also an interesting uh, problem with journalism where you have a trial, you cover the trial, and that's it. 
you don't do a follow-up. You don't figure out what's gone on since. Uh, maybe it's completely under the radar because it's in other courts of appeal and it's just you've got other things to, to write about. And if, like, I imagine none of this was, like, hidden in a cabinet somewhere that they had to, like, bust in. I imagine this is all public data of cases that have been some well-reported, probably some that have never been reported. But where are the stories about charter violations? Why is that not a whole genre of crime reporting if it's happening so frequently? Yeah, I mean, they got this information, they said, from LexisNexis uh, and Canley. LexisNexis for all the people who have JDs out there, like me, (laughs) (laughs) is like a repository of cases that you can search through. Like, I probably costs money for not law students and lawyers um, to, to go through, but you can just search through all the cases and then Canly. And so, yeah, all of this stuff is available. The other thing that is like concerning about it is that they follow up with the police departments to be like, ah, saw this, what's going on with this case? Because some of these cases have resulted, re- resulted in civil you know, civil trials, um, civil cases where the people whose whose rights have been violated are are trying to seek some sort of remedy from the police, and the police, surprise, surprise, are refusing to respond to any of them. Most of these people that are referenced in these articles are still working as police officers, uh, even if they've had multiple violations. And there's also um, uh, a refusal to uh, to discipline a lot of these these officers. So it's like you know. These things happen. They keep happening. They're not regularly reported on. But even when they are, nobody cares. No one's doing anything about it. And so this shit just continues to go on. And when somebody raises it as an issue, as you say, the problem is lack of training, lack of information. The the courts, they're just not providing us with the information that we need. We need a better pipeline of information. That is what's going to stop the no-knock warrant, which, which, um, you know, uh, ended up in a flagrant violation of people's rights and unnecessary detention. Yep, more information. Education. I mean, I, it's like a sign of the times, though, too, that like we, our times, our political times are such that political problems are responded to with like, like uh, solutions that make zero sense. I was watching the news with my parents because that's how they get their news. Uh, so we were watching the evening news, the 11 o'clock news. It's one of the ways they get their news. I hate watching the 11 o'clock news. <laughs> but we're watching the 11 o'clock news together. Um, and we get to like the international section and they're talking about Uvalde. And, um, you know, obviously what happened in Uvalde was horrific. The massacre of children um, and teachers. And they are talking about it in a way that I just, it was like making my brain want to explode. And then my parents said something really funny. They, well, not funny, but they like cut through the bullshit. Uh, They were saying, you know, like what went wrong here? You know, they're talking to some sort of police expert and the guy was like, well, you know, uh, yeah, you know, the police, they they could have uh, done some of these things differently. But what, what really one of the big issues was they were trying to get the key from the janitor. But they they couldn't find the janitor to get the key to open the door. So, like, you know, one of the big problems here was, uh, you know, like a lack of. And my mother says, no, the problem wasn't the janitor and the key. The problem was that the cops didn't want to die. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The problem was that the people who were 
meant to go in and say people didn't want to die. Yeah, duh. And so where do you attack that issue? Well, they, they you know, you attack that issue from um, the person who has the ability to kill them. How do they have the ability to kill them? You attack the guns, right? Like, that's obvious. But it just, there's this ridiculous conversation happening on the news that is, I don't know, meant to be newsworthy because it is on the news about keys and a janitor and not knowing where the janitor was when 19 children have been massacred. It just, it seems to make no sense. And we're just like in this place where we accept these nonsensical solutions to things. I mean, we saw it in the Ontario election. We saw it in the federal election. We've been seeing it politically generally. And I don't know, Nora, I'm like real sick of it and real fucking tired of it. And it just seems like such a waste to do all of that digging, all of that collection of data that the Toronto Star did, um, which I, you know, I agree with. I know some people um, don't agree with it continuing to count over and over again because it's just I'd like to understand the situation. I don't think it should be uh, us taking action should be dependent on the data collection, but I like to understand the situation. But what a waste to then conclude. And in conclusion, uh, we need better communication systems. Like, what? Well, it's because, like, people can see that there are fundamental problems. They can see, in the case of Uvalde, and, you know, when we saw this as well with the Orlando nightclub shooting, like, the implication of the police in the violence directly and how a victim count was totally given to a perpetrator where we know in Orlando a sizable number of the people who were killed that night were killed by police intervention. Okay. Possibly similar things have happened in Uvalde as that information continues to come out. We know that the, that, that, that what they're selling us is lies and we can see through it. I mean, you can smell it. Your mom, 11 o'clock at night. Like she's like, uh, uh, uh obviously. And what that does to average people is like you're watching the TV and these people are supposed to be experts in journalism, experts in policing, experts trying to explain the world for an audience that is too busy with their own expertise, too busy with their own lives to have other expertise in things like policing and journalism. And they're waiting for an answer. They're waiting for analysis. And we live in a post- fact world where you're never going to get that analysis and you're never going to get that fact because the facts and the analysis are a direct threat to the state, the existence of the state, the, 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 the realities that we all face. And it's as simple as that. Like I was talking to someone uh, this past week in Calgary uh, about how uh, the, the affordability crisis is very obvious and you're seeing more and more people uh, who are like living on the street seeing this, it's very clear. And, uh, he was saying, you know, it's not, he wasn't justifying. He's like, it's complicated, right? Like, like, I know that it's complicated. Affordability is complicated. We need to do all these different things. And it's like, it's not complicated. Like we, we literally know what, and yeah. And then of course he agrees, but we know exactly what needs to happen. We know you do X, you'll get Y. You give people money, they will be able to start to cover basic needs. We start to refuse to allow the gas corporations to control our gas prices and we start to nationalize things and then we can start to control prices. We can control rents, we can give people basic income, like there are things we can do. 
And because they're obvious and because the answer is right there, we now have an entire establishment, political, media, spokespeople, business, whose literal job is to take our heads and spin them around. And I mean, you're seeing that in the book that I wrote, which was exactly why I wrote Spin Doctors, is to do that exact same thing with every aspect of the pandemic in the first 18 months. You know, one of the conclusions that they could have come up with is that um, policing in Canada is making people very unsafe. Right. That would have been an excellent sort of conclusion to the document, like to a point, a thesis statement to this investigation. It is the Charter and Rights of Rights and Freedoms is a encoding of a bunch of things that we're supposed to be able to expect that is meant to keep us safe and secure and discriminated against whatever. If there is with regularity, such regularity to the point that you could argue that it is part of their jobs, if there is such regularity with which the police are violating that, that code of safety, security, whatever, then that should be the conclusion that police are not only not keeping us safe, they are one of the reasons people can expect to be unsafe is in interactions with police. And that would have been a better thesis statement, a better place to, um, to start to interrogate what to do next. Because, I mean, as you say, that is a much more dangerous, quote unquote, I'm making quote signs, um, a more dangerous conclusion to reach because it really does interrogate the state and the power of the state. If the way that the state intervenes on our lives is actually the thing that is making us unsafe, then, oh my God, how much of it do we have to spin around, take away, reconfigure in order to stop that from happening? And I mean, that is the scarier question, the bigger question, scarier for some, not for me. I'm like really not scared of that question, real interested in it, actually. <laughs> um, but that that is the harder question. And I just wonder, as journalists, why would you be afraid of interrogating that? Or maybe it's just the place like you don't even go there because there's so much that's telling you not to go there. <laughs> Yes, it's that, but it's also that most journalists are just not thinking about security in, the, in those terms and in human rights abuses from police. The most obvious conclusion of any investigation that relates to the police, as I said, is to give them more something. And if you look at, you know, the Globe and Mail's unfounded investigation, which was like the biggest investigation into the way that police treat sexual violence or sexual crime, um, and probably actually the biggest investigation into policing in general, because that actually required investigative research, not just looking up Canley, which isn't to say that's not investigative research, but that's like all there already. And Canley, if you don't know what that is, it's the, it's an online site of all court cases, decisions in Canada, and it's free. So you can always look it up. It's very interesting sometimes. And sometimes it's very boring. But um, even in unfounded, so the, the, the study from 2018, I think, the Globe and Mail, 
uh, found that uh, some number of sexual assault cases being brought to police were not being found as having any grounds to proceed with criminal charges. And, and that's like, that's the important role of police in terms of our criminal system is that, you know, it's the police who gather all of the information that then you go to trial on. So like, this is an important role. And if we're going to eventually abolish them, we can actually have some pretty interesting justice reforms. But anyway, and at the end of this massive, massive investigation, the conclusion, and then the activism of the Globe and Mail was that they need more money that they're not investigating these cases because they just don't have the resources to do it. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. There's no, there's no misogynistic cops. There's no cops that don't believe uh, anybody coming to them saying that they've had uh, experienced sexual violence. No, it's none of that. It's just that they just, they just need more money. And then my favorite part of all of this was that then the Globe Mail went from being a journalism outlet to being an activist outlet where they were promoting every new change that was made in different provincial or the federal government uh, related to cops saying, well, and look what our journalism has achieved. Uh, I mean, the reporter also won awards for, for journalism and reporting because it was this big piece of activist feminist journalism that resulted in action. It's enraging it's mind churning and it's so normal. And I think in all of this, I, you know, as you were talking and, I, and I'm, I'm currently reading uh, Rehearsals for Living by Robin Maynard and uh, Leanne Betasemosaki Simpson. And it, it's not a big part of the book, but it's mentioned a couple of times. Um, and I was thinking about this because you were the first person to talk to me about this a couple of years ago, the whole concept of security and the whole concept of safety. And how it, it, it has been remixed. It means different things to different communities. But the general idea within mainstream Canadian society is we've got police to keep us safe and they keep us secure. Even if like, we all know that that's incorrect. But that something like this investigation shows us that they are actively harming and actively not keeping people secure. And so if that's what the investigation finds, then you better spin that in a certain way because then people are actually going to start to get mad. I wonder what it like if I were to ask any of these journalists, like what would it what would justify cuts to police? What they would say. Yeah. I mean, I guess we could do that. (laughs) Well, maybe we're asking right now Uh, for the journalists who do um, listen to us like and and for people who, uh, you know, are are listeners of the pod, but disagree with, you know, our stance on abolition of policing like. What what is the thing from your perspective <laughs> that does justify? Okay, there should be some cuts here, or there should be um, some sort of uh, consequence here. Because you're right, like there is, there's nothing. Every single problem with policing, with safety, whatever, justifies more money being given to the police. And I just, I mean, we we don't see that in any other sector. And I'm just wondering what it would what it would be. Well, I mean, let's not forget that we are in an era, we are marching towards a more militarized state apparatus in general. We are marching towards a totalitarian-esque kind of interaction of citizens with their governments. 
Um, and as uh, austerity continues to rise, as the traumas continue to play themselves out of what we've experienced in the last two and a half years, and, and as things have gotten far worse in the healthcare system, and there's going to be much more people losing loved ones as a result of things we could have fixed, there needs to be a heightened police presence. There needs to be more criminalization. And I think back to um, when I first started to think about this stuff, which was uh, when I first actually moved to Toronto and started going to university. And there was an arrest of, um, of Queen Nzinga uh, from CKLN, a host at the, the radio station that does not exist any more, RIP, uh, CKLN. And it started this big, uh, well, not started, but it, it created a, a flashpoint of discussion and debate about criminalization of dissent because she was active on, on, on campus and in the community politically. And issues surrounded her citizenship and, 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 and deportation eventually from, from Canada. And so movements were like, you know, get cops off campus and um, don't criminalize dissent. And, and so here I am at 19 years old thinking, okay, the criminalization of dissent, this seems like something that's like probably a big deal. And, you know, we're two or three years out at that time from the Summit of the Americas protests in Quebec City. And then, of course, the um, other anti-globalization protests from the late 1990s. And it was interesting then of being a young activist, understanding that this is only getting worse, that there are no social forces that are actually forcing any of this stuff to get better because we're not strong enough, we don't have the we don't have the movement power, we don't we don't have the institutions or the institutions we have are in decline or are not capable or whatever. And that death march has just continued and continued and continued. And so it's very interesting to now have like 15 years of <laughs> oh my God, 15 years of of, of 16 years, 20 years of, of of watching this, knowing that they that anybody who has been granted access to a national platform has been granted that access because they are not going to be the kind of person that reads an investigation to the police and have the immediate reaction, public reaction, to be, we, we need to just get rid of this system. Yeah, I mean, hmm. I never thought about it in those terms exactly, that, you know, any, any person who is... But that's the truth, isn't it? I have had phone calls from politicians sitting elected politicians at the federal and the provincial level um, uh, during 2020 when uh, the defund the police, abolition of police movement was kind of at its height um, in terms of uh, public awareness and media attention, call me to ask me, how can I support this without saying these words? <laughs> Like, what is it that I can say instead? Um, and I'm just like, why are you calling? Like, I'm fucking busy right now. Like, why are you calling me? Like, at the resistance to even, you know, talking about it in terms of divest, invest. Wanting to know, like, look, I'm progressive. I see myself as a progressive person sitting in the house. Um, I need to be able to get behind this without seeming like a radical. I cannot say these things. This was, and no matter what sort of arguments that I was having with these people, like, sorry, this is ridiculous. Like, this is your moment. <laughs> this is the time people can see it. You're seeing public support for it on the ground. Like if there was ever a time, now is the time. There was just like this complete refusal. Like I, I cannot, I, you know, you know who I am. 
Sandy, you know who, you know how I really feel, but I, I can't say that. Well, if you can't say it, you can't put it into policy. If you can't put it into policy, you can't fucking do it. So if what you're telling me is that you're going to do the opposite of who you are or whatever, what the fuck are we on the phone for? Goodbye. I need to go. I have other things to do. Man, we need revolution so bad. <laughs> <laughs> we do, and we and we also need to like have like you know popularized plain language, which is some is there a process that has happened that you've been very very involved in. Obviously, that people are more and more able to see these things, and that uh, you know when I most recently my most recent anti police intervention in a public space is in a Facebook group in my neighborhood. Where parents are like, great news, we're going to have an action to, uh, you know, take over the streets. I'm like, oh, my God, that's awesome. And keep kids safe because people drive like, you know, very poorly. Yes. And the police will be there so they keep us all safe. And I'm like, the police don't keep anybody safe, <laughs> you know. And no one actually told me to go to hell. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Not that that means almost anything. But it is about how everyday people, listeners to the pod, your friends, your family, any chance that we get to identify how copaganda plays out in our society, if you don't even know that word, there you go, another word, copaganda, how the propaganda that, 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 that upholds the police as a necessary force for anything useful in society, we need to do everything we can to puncture that balloon. Because, you know, not only do we have uh, an affordability crisis and not only do we have mental health crises and, 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 and other medical crises that all need more funding, the police intersect with all of those crises. And it's, it's you know, it, and we see this all the time, right? Like the city of Toronto paying uh, 30 million or 20 million or 17 million or 5 million or fucking literally any amount of money to clear a homeless encampment rather than literally just giving that money to the people themselves. This state paying foster parents uh, money to take care of children rather than giving that money directly to the children's parents to be able to help them parent. Like, there's so many of these examples. But with police, it, it really isn't complicated. There are so many alternatives to what they do that we easily could adopt. They're very obvious. You know, I, one task that I saw a lot the police were doing in Calgary was biking around. Just, just biking around. And I know, Exercise. Yeah, I know a lot of people who'd be happy to be paid to bike around. And maybe they know first aid. Well, I mean, staying in Toronto in this last little time period, I've been walking everywhere because... It's Toronto and I love to walk and in L.A. nobody walks. So it's been great uh, walking everywhere and uh, coming across police officers who are standing in front of condo construction. Oh, yeah. Projects. That's the best. Telling people, oh, walk that way. <laughs> and I'm just like, hmm. <laughs> this is a lot of money, Toronto. Yep. <laughs> this is a lot of money um, to be told to walk in the obvious direction. And so I think that we take every opportunity that we can to, 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 to deconstruct this stuff and to talk about it in this way, but more importantly, to understand how it fits into the overall project that we are, that we are very quickly flying towards. And 
you know, the re-election of Doug Ford, this the the um, historic low of political involvement or political enfranchisement. Um, you know, what's coming next in Alberta is probably going to be just as bad. We know that's going to be bad in Quebec. British Columbia with an NDP government can't even decriminalize drugs properly. It's all bad. And if we if we don't continue to struggle against these forces, it will become even worse, even more quick. And the good news is that we have never had better arguments, more clear arguments laid on the table for everyone to see that policing, that armed police, that police ha- that have massive that have massive amounts of power. Uh, that can uh, determine the outcome of someone's trial because of the way that they collect evidence or the way that they treat people, the pe- the way they treat black people differently and indigenous people differently and worse. We see it all. We know it all. And we can't ignore it. And if we do ignore it, then we are supporting that. And of course, the big project now, I mean, we've been unearthing these contradictions and have had success at unearthing these contradictions and showing people um, uh, the the hypocrisy in our system. And I mean, that hasn't been easy. I mean, it, it's it. there's been quite a lot of pushback to unearthing these con- contradictions, but we've had that success. It is now time to move more towards organizing against... Um, against the continuation of these contradictions. So we need more people who are going to be, uh, who are writers, who are uh, writing a better conclusion than what we see uh, in the Toronto Star and more people who are going to be organizing like uh, concrete action strategies against these things. And that is the harder a harder task? Yes, except that um, certainly in many parts of Canada, there are municipal elections coming up. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason. I mean, you can hate municipal politics. I mean, I really, no one hates municipal politics as much as I do, other than people actually in them. Hi, I'm right here, oh, candidate number one. Right. <laughs> oh, geez, okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> I hate municipal politics. I, like, I would, if I went to hell, I would be in municipal politics for the rest of eternity. <laughs> like, just being pitchforked with a fucking with a fucking speed bump being like, this is my speed bump. I fought for years for this speed bump. It's like, Oh, you might be, you might hate it more than I me. do really, really, yeah. really hate it. But, but, uh, anti-police candidates could run municipally loud and clear. I am from, I'm literally from the defund the police movement and I'm running because we need to defund the police, inject these conversations in that, in those elections, inject these conversations in community meetings. It's like, that is going to be how we do it. Now the backlash is going to suck because the police are going to freak out and they're like not the best group of people to be freaked out at all, but that's going to be part of the growing pains. And I think that people should feel confident to say this stuff loud and clear there's, there's, there's nothing stopping you. And unlike politicians that are worried about how they may be perceived if they're talking about radical politics, um, we have, we have nothing to lose and everything to win.